Well, again, good morning and welcome to the Olathe Campus of Christ Community Church. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, it's uh, great to be together. Thanks for taking the time to join us this morning. Uh, you know, when I, when I hear those words, if you're, if you're listening um, to them, as, as Patrick read them for us this morning, um, you know, one of the first things that I think of when I, when I hear that is that, that we have got to tell a better story. Um, I mean, if, if, if that is, is who we were, right, that's what Paul says, uh, and this is who we now are. If Jesus is who he, who he says he is, and he actually, if he actually accomplished the things that he says he accomplished, then we have got to tell a better story. But the reality is, we have been telling a pretty lousy story for a pretty long time. Especially when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. Has the church gotten it wrong well, yes and no. You know, far too often the church has elevated this issue to a status it doesn't deserve. We've sort of made it as if it's sort of the, the very worst thing. And, and as a result, we have marginalized and mistreated those who experience same-sex attraction. We have specialized in the sins of others and ignored our own. We have failed to love. Shame on us. But at the same time, is it possible to take seriously what the Bible says about sex, any of it, all of it, including this prohibition on homosexual practice and the things that it has to say about gender and marriage and, and, and lust and pornography and things about adultery and sexual morality more broadly? Can we take those things seriously? Can we call sin, sin, while still loving and pursuing and welcoming all people? hope so. I mean, that's, that's the kind of church I want to go to. Now, if you're a guest this morning, let me, let me just say, you've got great timing, okay? Um, if this is your first time, you should, like, go and buy a lottery ticket this afternoon because your luck is hot, right? Um, no, don't do that. Not at all. I'm, in, in fact, you maybe you're sitting here the first time and you just feel disoriented. Let me just tell you how we got here. This is not, it's not our favorite subject. Uh, it's not our first Sunday of the month sermon, okay? We don't, we don't go here by default. But you see, we take this, this book, the Bible, we take it really seriously. And we have been in the midst of a study of the letter called 1 Corinthians in our New Testaments. This is week number nine, I think, out of about 25. Uh, and so we are walking through this, and we can't simply skip over the parts that make us uncomfortable or that we happen to find offensive. Yeah, but Nathan... Do we have to spend an entire Sunday talking about it? That's a reasonable question, right? Because we're, we're not going through each of these things, right? I mean, if you were looking at 9 through 11, uh, Paul has this sort of this long list of all kinds of, of sins. We're not going week by week through them. So why, why are we taking a whole week on this one? Well, we're not ignoring the others, right? If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about uh, swindling and stealing, right? These kinds of, of actions that are happening there in the Church of Corinth. We talked about that two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about uh, sexual sin, sexual immorality more broadly, right? Um, the issues that, that all of us face and adultery and, and lust and all of those kinds of things. So we're not, we're not just sort of picking and choosing, and yet we are spending more time on this one. Well, why? Well, here's the deal. I can't tell you the last time somebody came up to me and said, what's the, what's the church's stance on reviling? What's the Bible's position on idolatry? I don't get those questions. 
But I get the question about how does the church respond to the LBGTQ community, the, the debates around it. I get that question all the time. It's not that this issue is worse or more important. It's simply that in the day we live, it's just more complicated. And we need help. We, we need to come together to figure out what, what, what are the answers. And, and, and listen, we, we love this book, right? Right? Elbow, elbow, right? We love this book. You gotta, sometimes you've got to remind ourselves. That doesn't mean, just because we love it doesn't mean we're always going to like it. And this is, for some of us, one of those weeks where we're just, we're not going to like it. But here's the, here's the thing. If, if God has spoken, if he has actually spoken to us, then who really cares what I like? And, and if he knows what it means to flourish as a human, then I've got, I have got to take that seriously. And you and I, we have got to tell a better story. Now, some of you here this morning, you really want me to say um, that homosexuality is okay. Right? And, that, and you're going to be you know, frustrated and disappointed when I don't. Uh, but that's, that's not uh, the story this book tells. Others of you on the other end of the spectrum, you're like looking for a sermon on a little hellfire and brimstone about those people. And you're going to be disappointed and frustrated when that's not what you get. That's, that's not the story this book tells. And many of us are like somewhere in the middle, just kind of confused, right? Because maybe you've got a hunch about what the Bible happens to say about this, and yet this issue is not impersonal probably for any of us, right? Uh, we, we have friends, people we, we work with, people we love and care for, people in our, in our families or at our schools who experience same-sex attraction, and we're desperate to figure out how do we understand what the Bible says and how we live in a world that's as diverse as ours. And some of us here experience same-sex attraction. You, you know what these feelings are, are like, and you, maybe you're wrestling with what does it look like to, to deal with those things and to experience that and, and who you are, and yet take Jesus seriously. And let me say, if, that, if, that is, if that's your story, I am so sorry for the ways that Christians have marginalized and abused you. The ways that we have specialized in, in, in your stuff and ignoring our own, there's no excuse for it. It is shameful. I'm, I'm sorry that we've done that. And friends, we, we have a better story to tell. Neither unqualified affirmation nor categorical condemnation. But man, we need God's help, don't we? Man, we need his help. So let's, let's pray and, and ask him um, to be here with us. Uh, Father God, um, every one of us here is, is sexually broken. All of us. And so God, for myself, I want to I ask for forgiveness. Forgive me for specializing in the sins of others while neglecting my own. Forgive my loveless heart and forgive your church. And forgive me also for the ways I try to ignore your words or tweak them to fit my own desires, refusing to let you speak. And yet, God, I thank you that, that you have spoken. Thank you for telling us what it means to flourish. Help us to believe and help us respond with compassion and grace. Give me words this morning that are clear, true, and saturated with love. And give us ears to hear. Amen. Well, last week we began this three-week sex talk. So we got another week of this, right? Um, 
you know, last week, if you, if you missed it, I would, I would encourage you, you've got to listen to the podcast because last week we talked about sexual sin broadly, right? And God's design for sexuality for all of us, whether, whether you consider yourself gay or straight or wherever you're at on that, on that issue, you've, we've got to begin there, right? We, we can't just, if you hear this message out of context, um, it's just not going to work, Right? Um, we've, we've got to understand our own issues. And so we talked about that last week, spent an entire morning there. And we really laid the groundwork for God's design for, for human sexuality. Next week, I will talk about, because Paul does, of, of what that looks like for us, those of us who are married. How do we live this out? Um, because if you're married, you know that all of your sexual brokenness just doesn't get fixed, right, the moment you get married. Certainly not. In some ways, it gets more complicated, doesn't it? And God speaks into that as well. And so that's, that's where we're going next week. But what we've, what we've said for these three weeks, right, if we were to kind of boil what down what Paul is saying for all of us, married, single, uh, regardless of, of your, you know, um, same-sex attraction or, or, or not, all of those kinds of things, what Paul says to us is if you are a Christian, if that, if that is who you are, then you don't belong to you anymore. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's what it comes down to. So if you hear nothing else in these three weeks, but you remember that if you're a Christian, you're not yours that's, that's enough. That none of us has rights over ourselves, over our, our bodies, over our desires, over who we think God has, has made us to be and how we live that out. Everything is his. You are not your own. I do not belong to me. That's the story we've got to tell. It's the story of who we were, story of who we now are, and it's a story we need to learn to tell in the midst of our brokenness. So let's, let's jump in here. And let me just warn you right off the, the gate here. Um, this is going to feel like forever, okay? Um, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, I tried to make it shorter. It's just not going to happen. So if you're wondering when this is going to end, just tell yourself never, okay? <laughs> and then when it actually does, you'll be like, hey, that wasn't so bad. It wasn't never at all. So just kind of keep that in mind. Uh, maybe text your uh, lunch reservations. Um, the reality is this is a complex issue, right? Um, and as a church, you know, because of the way we, we talk through these issues scripturally, uh, it could be several years before we talk about this on a Sunday morning again, um, and we need to do it well, right, if we're going to take this seriously. So, yeah, for what it's worth, just brace yourself. Okay, so let's, let's start with the story of, of who we were. Um, because after this long list of sins, again, if you've got a Bible, turn there, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, this long list of sins, Paul says loud and clear to the church uh, at Corinth and to us, and such were some of you. And we have to begin there, right? Some of us, he says, not, not those people, somewhere out there, whoever they are, us, you and me, our community. That's what, that's what Paul, Paul says. And we can only talk about this topic if we include ourselves. I mean, you may not experience same-sex attraction, but if you think for a moment that your sin does not condemn you, you are halfway to hell already. Every one of our sins is deadly. And every one of us is desperate for redemption. But then Paul says also that this is who we were, right? Like past tense. It's not us anymore. These things, our sins, that's what Paul calls them, they don't define us anymore. They are not our identity. And yet so many of us have put homosexual practice right there at the top of the list, haven't we? I mean, let's not forget that we spent the first five weeks in 1 Corinthians talking about spiritual pride. Five weeks. Because Paul writes to a church who thinks they have it all figured out, 
all their messes cleaned up, right? That they're morally superior and wiser than anybody else. I mean, come on, let's, let's not kid ourselves, okay? Homosexual practice is small potatoes compared to the pride that lives in our hearts and so quickly wants to destroy us. Don't, don't be fooled by, by that. Yet, yet, on the other side, if we're going to take this seriously, we can't tell the story that it's all just sort of okay either. Listen, you can, you can reject the Bible and, and say that homosexual practice is okay. I mean, that, that you can do that, and honestly, I, I respect you if you do, if you think this book, you know, it's old, it's outdated, it has no bearing on our lives today, throw it out and say that it's okay. I, I absolutely respect that. I disagree with you, but I, I respect that. What we cannot do is say, I believe the Bible, just not this part. Because what that does, I mean, think about it, that makes you the authority, right? That means you get to decide when God is speaking and when he's not. Doesn't, doesn't seem like a very good position, right? Uh, for us as, as humans to, to, to speak in that way or, or, or to say, you know, I believe the Bible, but the Bible's not very clear on this and so it's just all sort of up for grabs. Th- those options aren't available to us. I mean, let me even tell you from a, on a personal standpoint, right, for my, myself, let me tell you the hardest part for me of preaching a message like this. It's not fear, okay? It's not, it's not timidity or, or, or even how outdated I know that I sound, really like that, but it's okay. It's not even that I know that I am going to disappoint and frustrate a good number of you on both sides of these arguments. The hardest part for me is that I truly, genuinely wish it were otherwise. I I, I wish that I could stand up here with the Bible as my authority and say, you know what, it's okay, we've gotten it wrong, it's all fine, we don't have anything to worry about. But I can't. And so what it comes down to, to each of us, if we're, if we're going to take this faith seriously, if you take Jesus seriously and his words seriously, you would have to make a decision. Am I my authority or, or is God my authority? Is, is his word my authority? That, that's where we have to, to wrestle. And if God has spoken, if he, if he really has, then I have got to believe that he knows a little bit more about human flourishing than I do. And so we've got our work cut out for us, don't we? This is complex. This is difficult. There's pushbacks. I can feel them already, right? Sort of off your faces. I'm trying to dodge them a little bit. I know them. I feel them as well. So let's, let's, let's answer two questions here. As we, the story of who we were. Let's, let's talk about uh, what does the Bible actually say and what are some of the common pushbacks? We've got to begin here. What, what does the Bible actually say about homosexual practice? And let me even, right out here, make a, an important distinction. Make, probably even picked it up from the language that I'm choosing to use this morning. Nowhere does the Bible call same-sex attraction sin. Nowhere, okay? Because of the fall, every one of us has distorted desires. All of us. Desires that if we let run free in our lives, they would destroy us. Every person. We have broken desires. We call those things temptations. It's acting on those desires that sin not the desires themselves. Do you, do you see the difference? That's really important. So anytime the Bible talks about it, it is specifically talking about practice, right? Behavior, living out our, our desires, whatever, whatever they may be. And so for example here, um, Paul mentions in, in that, that list, right? Uh, he says, uh, men who practice homosexuality. 
And your translations may vary depending on what you have, but essentially Paul is using two Greek words, one for the active participant and one for the passive participant in a, a homosexual relationship, specifically talking about the act itself, right? And, and so essentially Paul is he's not saying there that those who experience same-sex attraction or desires, he's not saying that they don't inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? He's saying that those who give in to those desires, who practice them, right, without repentance, without Jesus, just as those who give in to greed or um, lust or anger or adultery or any host of things without repentance, without Jesus. He says they, they will not inherit the kingdom of, of God. It's a pretty strong warning, isn't it? Well, what else does the Bible say? Because right? this isn't the only spot. It's not mentioned a ton, um, but we're actually going to kind of walk through, or at least mention briefly, all the passages uh, this morning where this comes, comes up. Um, I think it's important for us as we, as we think through this. Um, we'll, try to, we'll try to be as quick as we can here. Um, okay, so first off, it comes up in, in Genesis 19 uh, in Judges 19. Uh, but those, those texts aren't the most helpful. I mean, they do speak into the subject, but those situations, those stories, uh, they're not just about uh, homosexual practice. They are about same-sex gang rape, okay? Um, Bible's not G-rated, by the way. I didn't know if you knew that. Um, and nobody thinks that's okay, all right? And so we're not, not, those aren't the most helpful as we think through this particular issue. There's also uh, Leviticus 18 and 22, and Leviticus, as a book, is about the uniqueness of Israel um, as being a distinct nation called out by God to be and to look different than the surrounding nations. And Leviticus is the laws, the rules that God established to make them look different from the surrounding nations. Like, like for instance, no bacon, okay? Now, praise Jesus, we can eat pork, all right? And, and so it, it's, it could be easy to say, well, that's in Leviticus, and, and God said that was wrong, and so this is also in Leviticus, so does that mean we can also change what God says about sexuality in Leviticus? It's a reasonable argument, right? Because in Acts chapter 15, for example, the early church, they looked at some of those Levitical laws, like, like circumcision, like, like you know, food um, you know, that wasn't kosher, uh, and they said, okay, yeah, this, this, does, this does change here. That God is doing something new, something unique now with the broad people of God than he was just doing with Israel. Well, does that, does that mean we can, we can make a similar change? Well, the difference here, and this is really important, the New Testament explicitly says those things and explicitly explains why those things are happening. Why we can eat shellfish and, and bacon. Um, why we don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. It, it talks about those. But nowhere does the Bible ever change or adjust or rescind any of, of the sexual commands in Scripture. In fact, quite the opposite. It, it explicitly reaffirms them. And, and so, for example, Romans 1 is a key place um, to, to think about. It's one of, the, one of the most important texts as we think about this debate. Because there, Paul uh, specifically, I mean, he, he mentions both male and female homosexual practice. But he also it's clear in his writing that he's talking about uh, the Gentile world around the Jewish people, not, not just specifically to the Jews. And, and so what this means is that Paul, even though those, those laws were, were founded there in Leviticus, he's saying they also apply to Gentiles, right? Because as he's looking at them, he's looking at the, the Gentile world around him and say, yes, okay, it, God's design for sexuality equally applies here as well as there. It, it's, just, it's clear in, in Romans that that's what's, that's what's going on. It's not just in Leviticus, not just for the Jews. 
Two other spots it's mentioned, um, this being one of them, so 1 Corinthians 6, uh, and then also 1 Timothy 1, um, which is very similar to our passage this morning. Um, you can look there again, but it's a very same kind of context of what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 6. And these are all the places uh, where homosexual practice is explicitly mentioned. But even more important, and this is why we began here last week, are the teaching on God's design positively. I mean, that, that's why last week's message was so important, right? And, and why, if you didn't hear it, you need, you need to listen to the podcast to sort of catch up, because God doesn't have rules just for this area, right? He has rules across the board as he thinks about who we are, because, I mean, sexuality was his idea. That's how he made us. It's a good thing. He said it was in the garden. And so there's something something necessary about looking at the garden, right? Because that's where it all happened. And this is where we rooted some of our, our discussion last week as well. And so, for example, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, which Jesus uh, affirms in Matthew 19, um, and Paul uh, quotes from here in verse 16 as well, Genesis 1 and 2. God tells us how we were created. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so, everything is about God. That's that's, that's what we learn in in Genesis, right? God is the creator. Everything is about him, and that includes sex. In case you were wondering, sex is about God. I hope that didn't just, like, ruin it for you. Uh, But everything God made is is for him. It's about him, and it's to help us see who he is, to reveal something about him, and that includes that includes our, our sexuality and how we experience it. That's why we said last week, right, that, that sex is designed to exist in marriage because God is a God of, of covenant, right? Uh, he's not a God of one-night stands with his people that he, he respects and he loves and he pursues and he covenants with his people, promises to them. And so marriage is, is going to be the place where sex most clearly reflects that. Sex isn't about sex. It's about, it's about God. It's about who he is and who he's made us to be. It's what everything is, is for. So when, when God says in Genesis 1 that um, you and I were created to be like him, it says made in his image, right? Um, that means you and I, at the very core of who we are, we are created to reflect God, to show back who God is and what he's like, which is, I mean, just astounding if you think about it. If you think about the, the value or the difference of, of human beings, I mean, you, gotta, you can kind of see it, right? And what's so interesting, in Genesis 1, he talks about the fact as, as we're created in the image of God, he created us male and female, distinct, that, that, we're, not, that we're not the same, that this, this whole idea of gender was, was part of his design, and that there is something unique that we can't, men, we can't alone, males, uh, reflect God's image, not, not perfectly by ourselves. And women, you, you can't either, that there's something unique. Male and female, he created them to, to image God, to reflect who he is to our world. In Genesis 2, for example, um, and there, still before the fall, God um, makes it clear that even though you know, men and women, we are fully equal, right? Uh, that, that there is something unique, that, that we're not the same. And he didn't make us to, to be the same, to look the same, to, to always act the same. And he called it very good in the garden. Now, now hang with me for another minute on this, okay? And then we'll get to some of the pushbacks. Uh, this is a, a little bit philosophical, but this is important. As we think about God's design, as we reflect back to God, who he is and who he made us to be, um, it's important to note that we were, tr- we were created in the image of a triune God. 
Okay, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why that you and I are relational beings. There's not an option there. Uh, we are made to be like God. God is relational inherently, like in his ontology, right? Existing equally, one but three. Um, and we are also created to be relational beings. And in the Trinity, uh, there is both sameness, okay? Each are truly God, right? And yet there's distinctness. Each are, are truly unique. And so for, for sex to reflect God, there has to be both of those things. There has to be sameness between two humans, for example, yet also distinctness, male and female. Anything else distorts God's image. And if sex is actually designed to show us who God is and isn't just about ourselves and our own identity and our own pleasure, then that actually means something. And any time we move contrary to God's design for us, the way he's created us to live, in the original place, the garden. Anytime we reject that, we do so at our own peril, at our own harm. It hurts us. Now, again, I know there are pushbacks here. I feel that too. I mean, I, I also uh, live on planet Earth. I don't know if you knew that. I, I feel these things. And so well, let's talk through them. I, I think there's five in particular um, that I want to hit on here. Three of them have to do with the Bible. Uh, and two of them are just sort of cultural objections that we feel. But we've got to start with the, the biblical ones because that's who we are, right? We're people of the Bible. And so if there's something that we're missing in the Bible or, or not understanding, then we need, we need to know that, right? So we can figure out uh, if we're actually on the right track, if this is actually what God is, is saying, for example. So um, three, three on the Bible. First of all, for example, uh, if this is so important, why is it only mentioned a few times in the Bible? Uh, that's a common objection. Uh, why does it only come up a couple of times, a handful of times? Well, think about, uh, think about it this way. If you're a kid here, um, or if you've ever been a kid, um, think about how many times uh, your parents told you to brush your teeth. And think about how many times they told you not to shoplift. So I guess brushing your teeth is like way more important than not stealing, right? I mean, we, we know that that's ridiculous, right? It doesn't work that way. We don't, we don't count verses, we, we weigh them. And every time this issue comes up in Scripture, it is overwhelmingly negative, it can't, it can't possibly be spent or turned any other way but negative. And how often it's mentioned does not affect what it says. Another objection with the Bible um, here is, why, why doesn't Jesus talk about it, right? If it's, if it's really that important, why is it only Paul in the New Testament addressing these things? I mean, we, I mean, Jesus is our guy, right? Paul's cool, but Jesus is it, right? So why doesn't he talk about it? Well, there are a lot of things that Jesus doesn't talk about. I mean, really, if you think about it, there are more things Jesus didn't talk about than actually did talk about, right? Now, at the same time, I mean, Jesus does affirm the Old Testament in Matthew chapter 5, for example. He also affirms the creation of design of marriage being between one man and one woman for life, right? Affirming this, this picture of Genesis, uh, the sexuality that we have there, the two become one flesh. He, he does all of that. But you see, Jesus' teaching was directed primarily to the Jews, right? If you read the Gospels, it's, it's obvious. That's who he's talking, talking to most times. And they already... The, Israelites, right, the Jewish people, they understood God's prohibition, right? They had Leviticus and, and the passage in Genesis and Judges, and so they, they already knew these sorts of things. Paul, on the other hand, writes and, and speaks primarily to a Roman audience, to Gentiles, to Greeks. And the Roman culture of that day was very open to same-sex relationships, even encouraging it in some ways. I mean, it was, it was very, very, very common. And so they each spoke to their audience accordingly. but never in contradiction. 
But here, here's the biggest objection um, towards the Bible. And this, this one, at, at first glance, feels really compelling. Um, but, but it kind of goes a little bit, bit like this. Um, okay, so the Bible says this. Paul says this. I get this. Uh, maybe, maybe you're there. But, but the objection is, but Paul didn't know anything about the kind of same-sex relationships that we have today. He didn't know about the monogamous kind, right? The loving, committed. I mean, if, if only Paul knew about gay marriage, that'd be a different story. He'd be, he'd be okay with that. And again, this is, this is a huge argument, and at first glance, it, it seems kind of compelling, right? If, if all Paul knew about, I mean, this is the argument, if all he knew about was abusive homosexual relationships, because those were common, right? Whether it was pedophilia, very common, or, or male prostitution, very common, or, or even just sort of meaningless gay sex, right? Uh, of course Paul condemns those things, right? Who, who wouldn't? And if he's just condemning those things, then maybe, just maybe, loving gay relationships are really okay. And so we just say, well, Paul, just, he didn't really know. Because the job of interpretation, right, when we look at the Bible, it's not just sort of coming up with what we think it says, what we want it to say. Uh, our job, right, as we study the text, my job as I study the text is to try to figure out what did Paul mean when he said this, right? Because words carry meaning. And what did, the, what did the original hearers hear when they heard this? And if this is all Paul knew of, that does change things, doesn't it? If all he knew was the abusive side. Robert Gagnon, who graduated both from Harvard and Princeton, he's the author of, of The Bible and Homosexual Practice, which is widely considered the best resource on the biblical text in the historical context, uh, persuasively argues that that simply was not the case, that, that Paul would have known about a lot of other things than just the exploitative kinds of relationships. And so Gagnon, in his work, he points to uh, lots of examples of ancient Greco-Roman literature and art. Those are the kind of things that we have left over from these cultures, Right? But lots of examples of, of, of literature and art from the Greco-Roman world of the first century of non-exploitative same-sex relationships, including gay marriage. Uh, that, that even that there was, was part of the Roman Empire, as part of the, the culture in which Paul is writing. And yes, Gagnon is a, is a Christian, right? And so lest we sort of just dismiss him as being biased, right, and, and that sort of informing his history. Uh, there's another historian, deeply respected, who, uh, his name is T.K. Hubbard who's also a member of the LGBTQ community, and he supports Gagnon's research, that this was prevalent in the Greco-Roman world, that loving gay relationships were a normal part of the culture around them. And Paul, I mean, sometimes we think Paul's like some backwoods country bumpkin, right? The religious type. He didn't get out much kind of thing. I mean, Paul was an educated, multilingual, multicultural, urban-dwelling world traveler of that day. I mean, honestly, if you think about, like, education standards back then, without a doubt, Paul would have been in the top 1% of the entire Roman Empire for his education. He spoke at least three languages fluently. He traveled around the entire known world of that day, mostly in cities, living in them for, for periods of time. And he would have, he would have studied not just uh, Jewish history, uh, but it's clear in his writings that he knew uh, Greek stoicism and, and philosophy and all kinds of, of thought. Paul, I mean, if he lived today, Paul would have been an Ivy Leaguer. The top upper echelon of the educated. He got around. And he knew what he was talking about. He knew what he was condemning. Again, you can, you can reject the Bible. But what we can't do is alter what the Bible says. Make it fit what we want. It just, it just doesn't work. You can reject it, but we can't have both. And now I know many of us here, though, um, 
we probably get what the Bible says. At least a lot of us do. We're, we're not completely unfamiliar. Maybe the Bible's brand new. We're glad you're here, and hopefully, hopefully you're learning with us in this. But a lot of us get some of these objections, and we're, we're okay with that. But that doesn't stop our objections, does it? I mean, certainly not. The cultural objections around us, man, I feel these just as strong as the biblical ones, honestly. Okay? Uh, for example, two, two of these. For example, an objection would be, if someone is born this way and God made them, how can we tell them not to live out those desires? Now, some of you expect me to answer that by saying, well, we haven't found a gay gene, right? It's just a choice and yada, yada, yada. Um, I'm not going to say that, honestly. Uh, the whole area of genetics, there's way more mystery than, than we can make very clear statements on. Nature versus nurture, all of that. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, even the LGBTQ community doesn't even really go there anymore. This law is born that way kind of argument. But I will say this. I have been born with all kinds of desires that are broken. I have lots of them. Desires that if I pursued them, it would destroy me, my family, the people around me. Destroy this place for sure. Who I am, who I, how I see. I, would, I mean, all of us, right? We have these desires, desires that have been with me all of my life. As far as I know, from the time I was born, desires that unchecked seek to destroy me. The fall has fundamentally corrupted every one of us and every one of our desires. I mean, even think about that. Again, talking about genetics, and I know, again, so much mystery here, but uh, there's pretty strong evidence that some people are born with a predisposition towards alcoholism, right? Man, I, don't think, I don't think we'd argue that. There's so much evidence of that. Or, or predisposition towards anger, or even just broadly, right? Guys, we could probably make a case that we have testosterone, and so we're, we're born with a predisposition towards lust or infidelity, Right? None of that makes it okay. I'm, I'm still responsible for my, my, my decisions, my behavior, the way I live that out, how I'm, I'm wired, whether I'm wired that way or not. It really doesn't have that much play into it because we're all broken, we're all fallen, we all have desires that are distorted. And so what we do with those desires that matters. Now the other objection, I, and man, I, I feel this one. This is, this is the worst one. Um, it's probably your worst one too. I don't know, maybe not. But this one tears me up. And honestly, if we're going to take the Bible seriously as Christians and we want to love people, uh, this one ought to bring us to tears. The objection is, is something like this. How can we ask a person with same-sex desires that they might have their entire life and likely will? How can we ask them to live a life of celibacy? To give up on sex and to give up on what probably feels in the moment like any chance at love. How can we ask them to be lonely? That's a hard one, isn't it? <coughs> How can God make such a high demand? Well, this is where the story of, of who we now are comes in. Because the reality is, if you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I don't mean this, I hope this doesn't sound uh, patronizing in the least, but in some ways it's a little bit simpler here, right? Whether you're gay or straight, because if you're not a Christian, if you're not accountable to someone higher than you, right, then your desires, to some extent, have the ability to, to control you, right? And again, not, I don't mean it with judgment, but you, 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 in some ways you have self-permission to live out your desires, whatever they are, right? Uh, as long as they don't hurt anybody and laws and those kinds of things. And so in some ways, it's, it's a little bit simpler. But if you are a Christian, you don't belong to you anymore. You don't have anything that's your own, right? Nothing. Like desires, identity, any of it. My body, 
And if that's true, we've, we've got a better story to tell, better than our desires, better than sex, better than anything. I just, I just wish we actually believed it. Right? He says, and such were some of you, us, but you were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Every New Testament passage that addresses this issue, every one of them is in the context of hope, of forgiveness, of wholeness, of, of finding an identity in something other than ourselves or our desires or our proclivities, of finding our identity in Jesus. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture does God promise that our desires will change. Not in this life, anyway, they might. Certainly our, our ability, hopefully, to, to fight off our desires, our temptations, hopefully that increases and changes over time. But it doesn't promise that those desires go away. What God promises is that life with Jesus is better at every turn. And so whether you experience same-sex attraction or not, I mean, really, this is for all of us here. It doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, your identity is his. Period. And life with Jesus, we, we kind of forget about this, right, in our culture and Johnson County and, and all of that, but life with Jesus, by definition, is always a life of self-denial. Always. It's always a life of suffering. I mean, Jesus said, take up your cross. It's not a cute little saying, right? People were being crucified. Take it up and come with, he says. It's always a life of pain. It's always a choice between my identity and his. I mean, just even think of the millions of Christians who've been murdered for following Jesus, more in the last hundred years than the 19 centuries before it. It's not fair. But Jesus never said it'd be fair. Only that he'd be with us. Wes Hill is a great example of this. I'd highly recommend his book, Washed and Waiting, is his, is his book. He, Wes grew up in a healthy uh, Christian home in Arkansas, uh, and from day one, he knew that he was just different. Uh, and he tells a story in the book, and it, it's a story of why he daily chooses Jesus rather than the fulfillment of his homosexual desires. For him, as he tells his stories, it's because Jesus is, is better. He's better than anything. And, and so, for example, excuse me, he says, the message of what God has done through Christ reminds me that all Christians, whatever their sexual orientation to one degree or another, experience the same frustration I do as God challenges, threatens, endangers, and transforms all of our natural desires and affections. And then a little bit further in the book, he goes on and he says, the gospel proclaims that we belong to God twice over, first because he created us, and second because he has redeemed us through the work of his son. Though it sounds politically incorrect to modern ears, the gospel has always said that God may demand from us what he wants since we do not belong to ourselves. And Wes isn't alone telling this story. Eve Tushnet is another example. Um, her book, uh, Gay and Catholic, I also recommend. Uh, she writes that if the, if the church isn't doing its job, that's a whole different conversation, right? If we're rejecting people and we're not living in love, uh, but if the church is actually living this out, living out the gospel, a place of, of grace and healing and hope, right, and pursuing and loving one another, she says, if that's actually happening, then a life without sex does not have to mean a life without love, which is really where we need to spend the rest of our time, right? Because we, we may know these things, we may, may even agree with them or disagree with them, and yet, how do we actually, how do we do this? We've got to tell a better story, and we actually have one to tell. We're just pretty lousy at telling it, aren't we? So what do we do? Well, I think there, I think there are four things. Um, 
Four things. If we're actually going to take the Bible seriously and love people well, there's at least four things we've got to do. First, before anything else, we've got to repent. Man, we've got to repent. And then repent some more. And then after we're done with that, probably repent some more. And for the hateful ways that we have responded to the LGBTQ community, my goodness, shameful. I, I, I mean, to, to, to think that we so quickly treat other people who are made in the image of God for whom Christ died with such scorn. And, sh- and sure, there, there are folks in that community who would love to destroy us, right? We know that. Take away rights that we have. Jesus says to pray for those who curse you. He says to seek the best for those who seek to destroy you. When's the last time we've actually done that? And if, if you're here this morning and you, you deal, experience, same-sex attraction, you're trying to figure out what that, what that means for you, I just want to say it again. I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm sorry for the ways that we have, we have cast such a terrible reputation on Jesus and his church by the words that we say and the actions that we commit against you. And I, it's awful, and there's no excuse for it. We need to repent of hearts that are so empty of love. I'm sorry. And for all of us, myself included, when it comes to repenting, we also need to take our own sin a little bit more seriously, don't we? Because honestly, one of the reasons, at least, at least for me, and I, I think maybe some of you will share this with me as well, but one of the reasons that we cannot even imagine God telling someone to live a life of celibacy is because you and I give up almost nothing for Jesus in pursuit of our own happiness. I mean, really? What, what have we given up? So little. And so, of course, it seems absolutely outlandish to tell somebody that this is what God's designed for you is when we're, we're so unwilling to do anything close ourselves, even though do you, do you really think all Jesus wants is their sex life? He wants mine. And he wants my family. He wants my kids. He wants my money. And don't just think 10%, right? He wants all of it, all of my possessions. He wants my reputation, my work free time, every bit of who I am. There's not a single part of my life where God does not look down on me and say, that, that is mine. It belongs to me. Every bit of who you are, Nathan. Man, I've, I've got to repent. We've got to tell a better story. Second, seek understanding. We're so quick to like jump to conclusions. You know, that's why we spent five chapters on spiritual pride, right? We Christians, we just think we got it figured out. We think we understand, we have the answers, and, and all of those kinds of things, and the, the way we position ourselves is, is so shameful. We, oftentimes, we jump in without fully understanding. Get to know the people in your life who experience same-sex attraction. Get to know them. And if you don't have those folks in your life, honestly, open your eyes, right? Look around a little bit more. And, he, and if you still can't find people to get to know and to love in that way, I mean, read these books, right? Wesley Hill and Eve Tushnet, right? Who tell their own story. Allow you, get a window into the questions, the things that, that, that they're experiencing and dealing with, and particularly from the hands of other Christians. Listen to those stories, knowing that your story is also broken, deeply broken. And with this, too, we've got to be careful with how we talk about it. We've got to choose our words very carefully, right? And I'm, I'm not talking about being politically correct, okay? Come on. Jesus tells us to love, right? 
That's a much higher bar than being politically correct. Right? To, to, to love people in the way that we talk, the way that we speak, the words that we use, the jokes that we tell, uh, all of this matters deeply. And sometimes the way we talk is just embarrassing, shameful, really. Like, for example, saying, you know, it's just your choice to make a better one. And we may not actually say that, right? Maybe that's kind of the, the background. Or just, it's your choice, right? Just make a better one. As if it's some switch that they can just flip somewhere inside them. I mean, not, not only is that line of thinking completely ridiculous, it's absolutely unfeeling. To, to make it so simple and easy for someone, I mean, West Hill, for example, right? Someone who is living this out, following Jesus, living a celibate life, he says, there was nothing about his own story, there was nothing that felt chosen or intentional about my being gay. It seemed more like noticing the blueness of my eyes than deciding I would take up skiing. There was never an option. Do you want to be gay? Yes, I do, please. It was a gradual coming to terms, not a conscious resolution. I, I've, heard, I've heard Wes speak, telling his own, own story, and he kind of he jokes about it like it's in some ways. Like, why on earth would someone raised in a, in a strong, conservative Christian home, living in Arkansas, headed off to Christian college, why would he choose this for himself? And then choose to live a life of celibacy as a result. Yeah, sign me up, right? I mean, why? Why? I mean, yes, sure, we, we choose our actions, our behaviors, okay? Don't, don't misunderstand that. But when's the last time you've simply just sort of chose a feeling that it actually worked, right? We make it so simple. Or, or even with this, we make unrealistic as- assumptions of some sort of quick fix, Right? Come to Jesus, say a few prayers, and boom, you're straight, or something like that, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying that God can't change a person's desire, and certainly he can change our ability to, to live with those desires, right? To fight against temptation, and hopefully all of us are experiencing that as we continue to grow closer in our relationship with Jesus. But we've got to realize that broken desires don't always change. There are desires, man, there are desires that I wish were gone by now in my life, right? That I didn't have to fight with still. There's no promise that those things just disappear, What we do with our desires ought to change, but we should neither promise nor expect nor demand that someone's same-sex desires change. Mark Yarhouse, for example, in his book, Homosexuality and the Christian, he says that instead of spending our time arguing about what causes it, we we spend a lot of time there as Christians, like, how how did this happen, right? Uh, Or trying to fix it, right? We love to fix things, right? We do, do these things and we can fix it. He says instead of spending so much time in those areas, our time would be so much better spent figuring out how to love those who experience it and how to help them follow Jesus in it. You see, the goal of Christianity isn't to make everybody a heterosexual married person with 2.5 kids. That's not the goal. The goal is to be like Jesus. How quickly we forget got to tell a better story. Third, and this is where it probably starts to feel like forever. Yeah, sorry. Two more. Third, uh, respond with compassion. And, and if, you're, if you're here this morning and you experience uh, same-sex attraction, you know, maybe, and regardless of where you're at on that, maybe you're, these, those feelings are new for you and you're, you're trying to figure out what they mean. 
maybe, maybe you're sort of living into that lifestyle, trying, trying some things out, trying to, you know, to pursue a gay lifestyle. Maybe, maybe you just, you've rejected it. You said, no, Jesus is my identity. But regardless, no matter where you're at, maybe you're wondering, if I, if I deal with same-sex attraction, am I welcome here? Can I, can I be a part of this community? Let me just say, absolutely. Of course you are. I mean, look around, right? We haven't exactly been particularly choosy about who we let in here, right? <laughs> I mean, there's not a person in this room, and I hope, I hope we all hear that, not one of us in this room does not carry enough sin with us to damn us to hell in separation from God forever. In fact, me, okay, listen to this. The only way the God of the universe could save me, Nathan, the only way that he could make me whole and give me life with him where I could know him and be known by him, what it took because because of my sin, the God of the universe had to become a man. He had to die on a brutal cross and then come back to life again. It's the only way he could rescue me. That's it. And so if I'm welcome here, of course you're welcome here. We want this to be a safe place for you to, to explore and to ask questions and to figure out what does it mean, what does it mean to actually take Jesus seriously? And honestly, is, is it worth it? Is it worth, and all of us need to ask that question, is he actually worth the cost of following him? Or is he just kind of a hobby that we kind of put on Sunday mornings, right? Now the follow-up question with that is, well, will, will you affirm a gay lifestyle? No, we won't just as we won't affirm a, a lifestyle of adultery uh, or pornography, right, or anger or gossip or, or greed or materialism or any of those unforgiveness, those things that destroy us. If it's a sin, if, if God calls it a sin, if it's not part of his design for human flourishing, then we've got to talk about it. We've got to speak out against it because God wants more for us. But that doesn't mean you can't explore with us or seek Jesus with us. In fact, we, we'd love to have you. We'd love for you to ask those questions and figure out what it means to follow him here. And by the way, let me even just say, if, you're, if that describes you, um, please, please don't, especially if you're like not sure what you think about Jesus yet, please do not make a decision about Jesus based on his view of sexuality. Okay, Jesus didn't come to give us sexual ethics, right? I mean, he, he gave us some, but that's not why he came, right? If you want to take Jesus seriously, you have to come to him first on his terms, right? You have to answer the questions. Is he the son of God? Did he die for my sins? And has he come back to life? You've got to begin there and then, and then try to figure out what he has to say about sex. And if you're here and you're feeling ashamed, uh, if there's regret in your life or, or guilt, let me just, I just want to be clear. Jesus is pursuing you. Open, open arms. He loves you. He, he longs to, to shower you with love. He longs to call you his child, son or daughter. He, he longs to call you beautiful and to, to begin the process of making you whole just as he's begun that process in us. And regardless, you know, whether, you, whether you embrace Jesus or not, regardless, if you are ever attacked or abused or mistreated or discriminated against because of your orientation, would you tell us? We'll stand with you. We will, we will fight for you. Even, even if we don't agree on some of these fundamental things, there's, there's, no, there's no place for injustice in our world. We, we want to fight and stand with you in that. And so Christ community, we've got a long ways to go, don't we? And even on a personal level, right? Are you, is this a safe place, but are you a safe person? Is your community group a safe place? I mean, there, there are people in this room, right, without a doubt, who have hidden this in their lives, Right? These, these desires, these feelings, is, can they share those with you? 
and, and be loved and loved well in those moments. We've got to be a safe place. Think about it this way. A person in that situation, I mean, if they're trying to live out God's design, uh, that means most likely they've been rejected by the gay community for not being true to themselves. And then they come to us, right? And we, we have no idea what to do, right? We're terrible at this. Um, and meanwhile, there's a good chance they're trying to, to live out a celibate life. Can you imagine anyone in our world more lonely? More in need of community, of people? I mean, this, this is where the church is, is so important. I mean, just can you, can you imagine what that must be like? That, that ought to grip us with pain and a desire to love and pursue and do anything we can. I mean, uh, Sam Alberry in his book, he talks about how we need to, to love the people in our lives who are experiencing same-sex attraction more than the gay community loves them. And good luck, right? I mean, we've, we've got a lot to learn from the gay community. If I, can I say that, right? We absolutely do. They are good at loving one another, at caring for each other, at supporting one another. And he says, we've got, we've got to love those who experience this way more than that, and we've got, to, we've got to love them more than they love their own desires. And then, then we can show them the love of Jesus. I mean, the greatest desire for a person dealing with same-sex attraction is not sex. It's, it's love, Right? Can they find that here? Can we be a family for anyone who comes through these doors here in this place? We've got to tell a better story. Last thing. Thanks for being patient. Or at least hiding your impatience, I guess. Um, last thing. We've, we've got to live out our own ide- our new identity ourselves um, and, and to, help, to help others do the same. We've got to live that out ourselves. I mean, because our, our identity is Jesus. We've talked about this. I, if you walk away from this message and think that it's only about those folks who are struggling with this or dealing with this or whatever language you want to use, we've missed it, right? This is about all of us. Our identity. If you're a Christian, it's now Jesus, period. He, he is all we have and he's all, he's all we need. We, say, we sang that earlier, right? That he's all we need. Do we actually mean that? Your identity, if you are a believer in Jesus, it's not male, male or female. It's not gay or straight, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, black or white, blue collar or white collar. It's, it's none of those things anymore. Who we are is his, period. And if that doesn't change everything about us, everything about who we are, if we haven't made similar sacrifices that we're, we're asking others to make, if we don't live a life of self-denial, taking up our cross and following Jesus, I mean, think about it. Jesus didn't, he didn't die to make us happier or more successful or to give us a great sex life or, or to help us avoid suffering. He died to make us whole, to bring us back to the one we were created for, the relationship that every other relationship is designed to point for, the one that we need and long for, to offer us forgiveness and to begin the process within us now of making us right. Rosaria Butterfield, uh, she's a former lesbian, um, and that's, that's her description of herself, and so I just want to be respectful. Uh, that's what she calls herself. Um, also a former tenured professor at Syracuse University, uh, she met Jesus, and everything, everything kind of blew up in her life when she met Jesus. Uh, and she writes, I love this, she says, don't presume that the worst sin in your gay and lesbian neighbor's life is sexuality. It's not. The worst sin is unbelief. And that is true for every one of us. The worst thing that we can do is, is turn our back on Jesus, this one who makes us new, who calls us to be whole, who brings us to himself. It's the very worst thing we can do, and that, that's... That's who we were. 
It's who I was, but we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, he says. And that is a story worth telling. Let's pray. God, Father, would you forgive us? Forgive us for being so judgmental, arrogant, self-absorbed. God, forgive me, and man, I tell you, if there's anything that just hits me so hard when I think about this is how it's so easy for us to ask something so difficult to another person when we give up so, when I give up so little for you, Lord Jesus. God, I pray that you would convict me. Help me, help me to see what that means in my life and, and how together we can be a, a community of self-denial, even, even if that means suffering and heartache, that we can know and believe together that you're our, you're our identity and you are better and you are worth it. God, I pray that every one of us would continually give our lives to you, not once, not sometime in the past, but daily, moment by moment. And everything that comes with it. And God, I especially want to pray for those who are experiencing same-sex attraction. God, I don't, I don't pretend to understand what they're facing or the loneliness. But God, I pray that we'd be a place that is safe and loving and filled, filled with your presence, God, that we could together explore and, and see that you, Lord Jesus, that you're better than anything. But that's a work you're going to have to do in this place. We can't, we can't do, I can't do that. For those of us sitting here, we can't sort of muster that kind of love up. That, you're going to have to do that, God. So would you show us what it means to love? And God, I pray again that those who are experiencing it, that they would feel that. That they would know that you have not abandoned them or turned your back on them. And neither have we. And God, I pray those words are true.